the idea whose time has come today is the idea of freedom and human dignity. And so all over the world, we see something of freedom, of a freedom explosion. And this reveals to us that we are in the midst of revolutionary times. An older order is passing away, and a new order is coming into being. The great question is, what do we do when we find ourselves in such a period? Certainly, the church has a great responsibility because when the church is true to its nature, it stands as a moral guardian of the community and of society. It has always been the role of the church to broaden horizons, to challenge the status quo, and to question and break mores if necessary. So in 20 years, the Unitarian Universalist Church of Lincoln has had two services on Sunday morning uh, twice now. This sermon was originally supposed to be last Sunday, but life goes on. We've done a ton of work over the summer and the fall to get to this point, and so at this the second time we're doing two services, I want to do two things. First, to take a breath and realize that we are here, this thing is happening, and there are a lot of moving pieces to it, mostly fun. From a new Joys and Sorrows ritual at 9 o'clock to a new setup in the sanctuary, our new kids area in the sanctuary right now, new programs in religious education, different rhythms for our volunteers, more meetings on Sunday morning. There are a lot of pieces to this thing that we're doing. And the second thing is, um, somewhat obviously, to thank everybody that's put in work over the last year. This whole conversation started with uh, a board retreat in February 2019 about a jump in attendance that we saw about a year ago this time of year. And following the thread of that initial piece of information involved the staff, the board, the program council, a task force, basically every committee and volunteer leader we have, and the whole congregation. We participated in surveys, came to town halls, asked questions, occasionally disagreed passionately, and made this project your own in at least 300 different ways. I also want to take a moment this morning to thank Christine Davis and Sandra Washington, <laughs> who led the service last Sunday on our first time that we were doing this when I was unexpectedly ill. So you might not know this whole story, but on Saturday, a doctor told me in no uncertain terms that I could not be with other people for at least 24 hours. So with no warning, at 5 p.m. on Saturday, Christine got a text from the minister saying, so that sermon that you're preaching on January 25th, how, how ready to go is it? It is a bummer to miss a Sunday. It's a bummer to have a flu. It's, uh, it, was, it was hard to miss last Sunday. And it was a relief to know that even on a day as chaotic and important as last Sunday was, the church was in good hands whether or not I was actually here. It was an excellent lesson in the unimportance of the minister in some ways. <laughs> The musician Glenn Hansard, in a, a concert a few years ago, had this to say about a song that he wrote that took off beyond what 
he had expected. He said, this song has been an absolute wonder. It's a wonderful thing that's happened to us. Like any song, you write a song, you hope it's going to, you know, whatever the song is about is going to work. And you hope that the lyrics make sense. You hope that it's going to speak from your heart. You hope it's going to have a bit of truth to it. And this song, if I could use a metaphor, if I may, is a bit like, you know, you kick your ball and you hope it's going to get to the end of the garden because that's where your little brother is waiting to kick the ball back. And so you kick your ball hoping it's going to reach the end of the garden and your ball goes over the wall. It goes over the river, it goes past the next town and it goes into a place where you could never imagine it would end up. And the tiny, tiny, tiny piece of you that's saying, I want my ball back is completely outshadowed by the wonder of, oh my God, the ball went that far. That's more or less how the last couple weeks have felt. <laughs> and integrity compels us not to stop in this place this place of feeling amazed and grateful for this congregation and what it means in our lives. Our theme this month is integrity. And part of that to me is the opportunity to interrogate our own actions and motivations. We've done this huge thing over the last year to make sure that we have space, literal physical space for this congregation to grow. Now, on one hand, this has been a very practical question with very practical reason, reasoning. We do not have the space. We did not, past tense, have the space to add 20 more regular uh, Sunday morning attendees from week to week. Now we do. But digging deeper, there's a basic question that we should ask. What does it mean to grow? Is church growth simply a, a logistical and financial question, or is there a moral dimension to it? For me, having more Unitarian Universalists in the world is a clear moral good. I may be professionally biased. <laughs> but the cause of liberal religion is one that is central to my life, and because of that, I want there to be more Unitarian Universalists. Nationally, there are less than 200,000 of us. I hope over my lifetime that number will double. It hasn't. It's been pretty much the same, 160,000 since King gave that speech in 1966. I hope it grows because Unitarian Universalists are people of faith. We are active in the world and people who are in relationship with one another. Unitarian Universalists are people of faith. There have been times in American history when religion was a liberal, liberating force. From abolition to the, to the social gospel, to the civil rights movement. It's only relatively recently that people of faith has become shorthand for conservative evangelical Christians. And every Unitarian Universalist that exists out in the world is a living demonstration that Jerry Falwell does not get to define what it means to be religious. 
Unitarian Universalists are engaged in the world. We try not to, as Martin Luther King put it to the 1966 General Assembly, sleep through the revolution. This does not mean we're perfect, but we've consistently chosen to engage rather than step back from the world, using our minds, bodies, and souls to engage in the struggle for justice. And Unitarian Universalists are a people of relationship, in covenant with one another, and this part is so important. Because it's possible to be a spiritual individual engaged with the world, but for us, we do this work in community, in relationship. And this helps us be effective in the world. Authentic relationship is the basis of pretty much every successful social movement. But it is also a reflection of our theology, that we are a part of an interconnected web of existence and that the divine itself can be glimpsed in that web. More Unitarian Universalists are always a good thing. And at the start of a new decade, at the start of this new decade, that is truer than it has ever been in my lifetime. The 20s, and we are in the 20s now, will be defined, I believe, by three interlocking crises, inequality, civic instability, and climate change. And as much as these crises may define the age we live in, our responses, individually and collectively, will define who we are. In 1966, the Reverend Dr. Martin Luther King was invited to give the Ware Lecture, the annual Unitarian Universalist General Assembly. It's an interesting quirk of our denomination and our personality as a people, I suppose, that by long tradition, the keynote address at our annual gathering of Unitarian Universalists is delivered by someone who is not, in fact, a Unitarian Universalist. The best of the Ware Lectures, and King's Lecture in 66 is one of the best, hold up a mirror to who we are and who we might be as a people. Often the most cutting critiques are those of friends, but those are also the best to learn from if we hear it in the love that it's offered in. So 50 years ago, Martin Luther King thanked the UUA for showing up in Selma a few years earlier, grieved with the gathered for the death of Reverend James Reed, and then reminded the General Assembly of how much work there was to do, how racial inequality wasn't just a problem in Alabama, but was a problem in Chicago public schools, how it is not enough for a church to condemn white supremacy in word, they have to get into the fight and work against it, and that the easiest thing for a church to do is to exaggerate the progress the country has made and their own role in it and use that as a reason for complacency. We've made progress on issues of racial and economic inequality since 1966. The progress is not sufficient. In 2019, black men and boys were twice, twice as likely to be killed in an interaction with police than white men were. Economic inequality has accelerated over my generation. 
fueled by a recession that some folks my age have never and probably will never fully recover from. And in 2019, in 2020, Americans die because they are rationing insulin. This inequality fuels the second crisis, which is civic instability. On Tuesday, the impeachment trial of Donald Trump begins in the Senate. A week later, the Iowa caucuses mark the first votes in the 2020 presidential campaign. And when I was writing the first draft of this sermon a week ago, I wasn't sure whether or not I would have to drop everything that I had written in order to talk about a state of war between our country and Iran. I have no idea how any of this is going to turn out. I don't think anybody does. And the church is not a place of supporting any candidate, any single candidate for office. But King reminded the General Assembly all those years ago that when the church is true to its nature, it stands as moral guardian of the community and of society. That is what we must do. Whether in responding to foreign policy or to hateful anti-Semitic graffiti right here in Lincoln. And the third crisis, the 20s, is climate change. Data from the end of 2019 confirmed that the 2010s were the hottest decade on record. There's nothing to show that the 2020s won't be hotter. Followed by the 2000s, followed by the 1990s, it appears that since the mid-20th century, average temperatures across the globe have, ri have risen over one degree centigrade. This is most of the way to the 1.5 degree mark that the UN believes will have catastrophic impacts on millions of people. And we're only beginning to understand, really understand, what the consequences of that will look like over the next generation. The last IPCC assessment suggests sea levels are on track to rise 30 centimeters, so about a foot, by 2065. And if 2065 sounds like an unimaginably long time in the future to you, in 2065, my daughter Ailish will be 47 years old. So inequality, civic instability, climate change. And there's a fourth piece intermingled with all of those three. We live in a time of tremendous polarization. There is profound disagreement on how to approach each of those three crises. There is deeply felt disagreement on all three in this congregation. And so we're back to why it's important to have Unitarian Universalists in the world. We are people of faith who are engaged. And so when we come to the challenges of this decade, we come with hope. And we show up in community. And this last part cannot be emphasized enough. In the midst of an age of polarization, we gather every week as a diverse and quirky bunch of individuals who recognize that we're interrelated, that we are somehow in this together. In 1966, King put it this way, all life is interrelated. We are all tied together. 
for some strange reason, I can never be what I ought to be until you are what you ought to be. And you can never be what you ought to be until I am what I ought to be. This is the interrelated structure of all reality. John Donne caught it years ago and placed it in graphic terms. No one is an island unto himself. Every person is a piece of a continent, a part of the main. He goes on to say, any person's death diminishes me because I am involved in humanity. Therefore, send not for whom the bell tolls. It tolls for thee. This realization is absolutely necessary if we are to remain awake in this revolution. In the coming years, we will challenge each other. We will disagree, we will work together, celebrate and mourn, and we'll do it together because we know that in some strange way we are one. More Unitarian Universalists is a good thing. It isn't simply a change in logistics, it's a moral choice to stand in this moment and say, this is who we are. We are a growing, engaged community and we have something to say. Come and join us. Come and be a part of this thing with us. So here's the ask. Last fall, we put in place a new part of our welcome that we, do, that we do at the beginning of every service. We say we are about the work of transformation and we can't transform the world if they don't know what we're about. I know, I know. And it's a topic for a whole other sermon that we're going to do sometime soon. How allergic Unitarian Universalists are to anything that sounds at all like proselytizing. <laughs> I know. I get it. But this is a moment that we're in. This is, this is a tremendous moment of challenge, and it's a tremendous moment of opportunity. So if you're here because this community means something to you, if it gives you resilience in an election year, if it helps keep you sober, if it helps, if it's where you conspire on letter writing campaigns, if it's a sanctuary in a chaotic world, go tell people. Go tell people about this place. Go tell people about what you have found here. Because I promise you, your friends who are out there who don't know what we're about, they need all of those things. They need all of those things. And that's why I'm here. Because I came to a Unitarian Universalist church and it was the place that transformed me. And I know that's true of so many of us. And so we have room now. We have physical space. We can fit 20 more butts in seats on Sunday morning. But the reason that matters is because we are about the work of transformation. Because we're not just about 300 people in Lincoln, Nebraska talking to each other. We can absolutely be that and we can be more in this moment. So as we begin this decade together, we give thanks for everything that has led up into this point and we look forward what is to become, what is yet to come. Martin Luther King ended his Ware Lecture in 1966 by quoting poets. 
He said, let me say in conclusion that I have not despaired of the future. I believe firmly that we can solve this problem. I know there are difficult days ahead, and they are days of glorious opportunity. Our goal for America is freedom. And we're going to win our freedom because both the sacred heritage of our nation and the eternal will of Almighty God are embodied in our echoing demand. And we can sing, we shall overcome, because somehow we know that the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. We shall overcome because Carlyle is right, no lie can live forever. We shall overcome because William Cullen Bryant is right, truth crushed to earth will rise again. We shall overcome because James Russell Lowell is right, truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne. Yet that scaffold sways the future, and beyond the dim unknown standeth God within the shadows, keeping watch above his own. With this faith, we will be able to hew out of the mountain of despair a stone of hope. He was quoting a Unitarian, James Russell Lowell. And that poem, Truth Forever on the Scaffold, exists in our hymnal. We don't sing it that often, but um, it's there. So if you would, please rise in body or in spirit <laughs> and join me in singing hymn number 119, Once to Every Soul and Nation. <laughs> <laughs> 